3: So our hope is that this podcast will encourage growth, both for individuals and communities.
1: We don't have all the answers, but we're here to sort out as much as we can over a drink or two. Join us as we ravel out our faith in a complex world, pulling on one thread at a time, seeking meaning at the end of it all. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome to the show, to the pod, whatever we say, whatever this is called. Oh, thank you. Uh... What are you guys drinking?
2: I am just finishing up one of my new favorite beverages. It's a lavender vanilla Italian cream soda.
3: Ooh, lavender. Lavender vanilla. Okay. It's
2: great. Since I can't have caffeine, it's a good substitute.
3: Oh, absolutely. My favorite combo when I was in high school and you and I were making Italian sodas a lot at the little coffee cart was vanilla almond. That We called that the cloud nine. Yes. That's a good one. Josh, any experience with the cloud nine? No, I can't
1: say that I have. I do mm-hmm. like a good Italian soda.
3: Yeah, you've always worked at much better coffee shops than I did. I worked at fast food coffee <laughs> most of my life. Um, That's a good I, comparison. Speaking of coffee, though, fam, I am drinking the absolutely delicious, no-normal-people coffee blend that I developed with my friend Gary here at Revel Coffee in Billings. Gary's like a, in a, like a national award-winning roaster, Absolutely expert at what he does, and he and I partnered up, and we made a coffee blend for my other podcast, No Normal People, and it's just it's just amazing.
1: As a coffee snob, I feel like I can vouch for Gary. He's very excellent. I order his coffee semi-regularly.
2: Does it have a name?
3: Yeah, it's called No Normal People Blend, the No Normal Ooh, People Blend.
1: Absolutely.
3: Right.
1: Speaking of Italian sodas, I am drinking uh- the world's best Italian soda, um, it's a tangerine Lacroix. It's delicious. Okay. Um, okay.
3: Wait. Italian soda, huh? You're gonna go with that? Well,
1: I guess maybe it's a French soda. I don't know. It's whatever. Sparkling Close water. enough. It's naturally essenced. Um. Oh, I guess we have a couple announcements before we start. We don't have any new Patreon supporters, so nobody bought our drinks this week. That's fine. Uh, but if you do want to support our Patreon, we are on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. But. We do have a very important announcement, which is we are officially one of the founding podcasts of the Highline Network, which just launched effective this week, right, Steven? Effective
3: this week. Yeah,
1: we're pew, rolling pew, in pew, it pew. now, right. fam. Yeah. Look at us go. Fireworks and here. <laughs> what are the official uh, founding podcasts of the network?
3: Our right founding podcasts are the aforementioned No Normal People that I started with my wife at the very beginning of 2020. In fact, Josh was our first guest and it is Ravel and my other friends over at the Whiskey Bench podcast that I record with my friends Stephen Torna and Kat Dwyer. We talk about like current events and politics on that one. But the three of us—no normal people—Ravel and Whiskey Bench. We are a trinity, if you will, the trinity mm-hmm. of the founding members of the Highline Media Network. It's it's very hype. It's very hype. Thanks for joining this this journey with me,
1: you guys.
0: It's so You're exciting. Welcome. We are
1: also hyped. So, with that said, you might hear some additional new fun things in the episode, uh, in the middle or at the end. Uh, but it's just to give you a better picture of all of the things that are happening in our sister shows, which mm-hmm. is super fun. And super exciting. You mm-hmm. should definitely uh,
2: give them a listen. They're great.
1: But for Ravel, this week was hard, you guys. I have been thinking about a lot of things. And to be honest, it's really hard to whittle down what I want to talk about. So
3: let's play roulette. <gasps> oh, oh, this is new. <laughs> I'm into this.
2: We're doing all sorts of
3: new things this episode.
2: You know what I've determined?
3: Oh, what's that? What have you determined? I
2: think what we should do is we should each have a dice and have various topics that we can write on them and then just roll the dice.
1: Whoa! Whoa! Honestly, Stephen has like tons of D twenties. Maybe we
3: should just do that. D twenties. <laughs> that's funny. D twenty. You would want to use a D twenty. I was thinking a D <laughs> okay, okay, four.
1: Okay. Okay. Maybe Well, today we're playing D four. Okay. okay. Um, so, uh, on quadrant one of the quadrilateral, okay, is
3: sin. Oh, uh, that's the whole topic. You just want to talk <laughs> about the, the nature topic. of sin. Uh, okay.
1: Quadrilateral number two, quad two, the relationship. The potential relationship between prosperity gospel and Calvinism, because I have some questions and thoughts about that. Oh. Quad three, autonomy or agency. Like free will? I guess so, but I'm particularly interested and have been thinking about autonomy. Okay. But we could, yeah, we could flesh that out a little okay. bit more. Sure. Quad four, deconstruction. <sighs>
3: deconstruction in general.
1: Deconstruction in general, the D word, the, the big D, the thing that's happening. Don't call it the big D. Don't. Do <laughs> the, the, yeah, the, the, <laughs> uh, the ge- <laughs> that's how scholars will remember us in this age, the big D. Yes. Uh, yeah. Those are the four things I'm thinking about: sin, prosperity Man. gospel, autonomy, or deconstruction. And like
2: none of those are related. I feel, like
1: I, I feel like we could talk about any of them. Yeah. Yeah, they're all really distinct, and I could not find like I was trying to figure out like what was the common thread between all of them and i got nothing so you you're uh, the you choose thread. for me yeah
3: that's true
2: oh man um, this is hard
3: to put to a vote cuz it's only just one against one now yeah if we should we actually just roll a dice based on the order that you did oh yeah okay <gasps> yeah roll a dice let's do it hey siri roll a d4 rolling 4 deconstruction it is Woo-hoo!
1: deconstruction it is <laughs> there we go okay well thank you welcome so to our it. hot takes about deconstruction yeah i'm into it I have been thinking about deconstruction a lot, and I think you guys probably have too, right?
3: Uh, oh, absolutely. I've been thinking uh, about it yeah. for like three or four years now.
1: Maybe we should just start there. Where Where do you think was the first place you encountered the word deconstruction?
3: Oh, it was on the Bad Christian Podcast for me. Okay. Emily?
2: Um. Probably my junior year of college.
1: Oh, okay. Any like particular place or just you like remember you probably heard about it then.
2: Uh well def like I definitely heard about it but we I remember this college bible study that I was a part of that that was a topic that was heavily discussed.
1: I think I first heard about it through the podcast The Deconstructionist. I've been a listener since pretty early on. I might have heard about it first on the Liturgist podcast maybe but like somewhere in there like between those two I mean, obviously, it's in the name, The Deconstructionist. So, right. Obviously, at some point, I heard about it. I have some gripes with the, the word usage and the definitions, but I'm particularly intrigued with how many people are using the word to describe what they're going through or like, like the general like, movement that seems to be happening in American Christianity. I'm very intrigued by it.
0: Mm. Hmm.
1: Maybe I should just say my hot takes up front. I feel like I saved my hot takes for the end. I personally do not love the word deconstruction. Why? And there's a couple of reasons why. Number one, I don't think it works well as defined by the person who invented the word, Jacques Derrida. Uh, Mm Oh, yeah. I'm not a Derrida scholar, but they talk about this a lot on the deconstructionists. And like even they admit that they're using the word wrong because Derrida was like a literary critic. Like he was like writing about literary philosophy. And his concept was uh, centered around the way that language itself breaks down, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like language deconstructs itself. And like falls apart because, like, we give it meaning and like it changes over time. And like, that's what he meant by it. Right. But for some reason, it's like become married to the idea of faith crisis or faith deconversion or what we're calling raveling. Mm
2: -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, and what word would you prefer to use, or what is a word that is most comfortable to use in place of?
1: Well, I think that's what's so interesting to me is that, like, it seems that a lot of people are really comfortable with using the word, or there's like other people that don't like using the word. Uh, Personally, I really like the term raveling for Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense. But, But I don't know what to do with it because, like, there's so many people out there who either like the word or don't like the word or don't seem to be informed about, like, where it came from. For instance, on the deconstructionist pod, they like admit that they're using it wrong, and that's why they like, Put the D in brackets, mm, right? Because mm-hmm. they like wanted to acknowledge that on some level there has to be like a a construction or a, a reconstruction. And so I, I've noticed a lot of people have been using that like reconstruction language too. Yep. Yeah. Mm, sure. And so the the way that they formed an analogy around it was uh similar to the way that you take apart a gun, like you take apart a gun to clean it to like learn how to put it back together again. Sure. Mm, but to yeah. be honest, that's not what is meant by Derrida's
3: concept of deconstruction right I've noticed that uh, especially in the the latest few episodes I've noticed that Emily is the best deconstructionist among the three of us in terms of like Derrida's definition like when we when Emily always brings us back to the meaning of the words like when we were discussing hate and she's like Mm -hmm. oh yeah sometimes hate means something completely different like I hate stubbing my toe and I also hate racism those are completely different things. Like I I've noticed in editing the show that Emily is <laughs> Emily keeps us closest to Derrida's original intent for the term.
2: Do I get and a I, prize or like a trophy or something?
3: Well, I mean, you're a pastor, so like good job at being <laughs> good job good at job doing at that, doing I guess. Job. Good job doing your job. <laughs> but you're doing it well is my point. Is like I think oh, it's you. easy for me, especially over the last few years to say like yeah, in my deconstruction journey, I, you know, I started rethinking hell or whatever. And like that already has diverted from what Derrida meant as a literary mm. critic, just like talking about pulling the words apart all the way down and analyzing, you know, like cultural baggage attached to sure. any given word. Whereas I just, I use it as a more of a metaphor, which I think the Deconstructionist podcast has addressed. It's more of a metaphor for like, You know, somebody helped you build like a studio apartment around yourself and the theology you were handed as a youngin'. And now you're like brick by brick taking pieces out from the top down and just kind of getting down to the bottom of where the foundation lies for you. And then reconstruction is, you know, the building back up around the things that you find to be most valuable or like discarding the materials that are like rotted out or whatever.
2: Maybe one of the things that would be helpful is. So some people, if they're listening, they may think of a different word that comes to mind. But not to be confused with deconversion, right? because i've I've often mm. heard people using deconstruction in place of deconversion, and they're actually two very different ideas. So just to keep that in mind. If you're starting to go down this track where it's this process of no longer identifying, as belonging to this particular faith or a particular element of faith, that's deconversion. And deconstruction is something completely different than that. So just keep that in mind.
1: Okay. Hear me out, though. I hear what you're saying.
3: See, she's doing it again. She's doing it with the words and
0: stuff. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, this is a great (laughs) example, though. Okay. I have two thoughts. Uh, Thought number one, I actually do think deconstruction happens a lot in theology. Like people are using the same word, but invoking different meanings. And so, Stephen, I think you're right that Emily's a really good deconstructionist because she does get us to like define what we're talking about.
3: Yeah, even if it's like Merriam-Webster's <laughs> definition. Like, let's <laughs> <Yeah>. let's agree <laughs> yeah. on but how we're using the But I think it happens a ton
1: word. in theology just because of like academic jargon. Like, yes, I, like that's kind of what Derrida was talking about when he was talking about language breaking down. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right? So I think theology itself definitely deconstructs. Although, but hot take, Emily, I actually think that deconversion might be a better example of. What Derrida meant by deconstruction,
2: oh, even though d- I'm just saying they're not the same thing. So I think that's where the mislabeling maybe took place.
1: Sure. So right.
2: so if we're wanting to discuss this idea of reprocessing or reevaluating essential elements to our faith identity, and we discover that we no longer identify with, or we find ways of enhancing, then that's deconversion. And I think deconstruction is something completely different. And I think it's just used so simply and so regularly throughout conversation when one is deconverting Mm. rather than deconstructing. But they want to use the word deconstruction. I do think
1: you bring up a good point, though, that deconstruction like it's really ironic. It's actually really ironic that people will evoke the word deconstruction and there are so many different meanings for it. Like so many people mm-hmm. use it to mean different things, like deconversion, like full stepping away from faith and not believing things anymore, or like a reevaluation of your theology or like considering a different view. Mm-hmm. And- or there's like the people who feel like everything is falling apart around them and there's not necessarily an end point yet. Mm. Sure.
2: I think it's a nice filler word for us.
1: Yeah. Like I get why so many people are using it, I think.
3: But it annoys what me. What annoys you specifically? Because I have something that annoys me about the whole movement, I guess.
1: Well, I'm not annoyed by the movement. I th- I'm I'm mostly annoyed by the word usage. I think that's the best distinction I can make. Oh, Is it because okay.
2: it's used so many ways?
1: Yes. That's my primary
2: gotcha. issue with it.
1: Okay. Like, I do think we should have a better definition for it. Like, if people are going to use the word, I mean, like, identify with whatever word you want to use, especially for, like, something as complicated as... Faith crisis and trying to ravel out your theology about what you actually believe about something, I, like I'm not annoyed at the people going through those things.
3: You know what I mean, right? I think one of my my biggest beefs with any of the language we've been using, and and honestly, this is why I am particularly proud of the name of our show. It doesn't include uh, negative prefixes. Like we're not unraveling, we're not deconstructing. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of my issues with the whole thing and something I've I feel like my heart has been trained to make the pivot into like, it's way too easy for me to just look at different theologies that I view as problematic and just say, I'm not that, but not do the work to work to identify what theology Mm. I might land in, you know? So like, I don't like how even deconversion refers Mm. to your thing in the past that you're simply rejecting or deconstruction is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm taking apart the house of cards that was built for me by my parents or by my youth leaders. Unraveling feels like the same thing. And I know, like, we just don't have the un in there because (laughs) ravel and unravel mean the same thing. But that the lack of negativity is starting to feel very right to me. Even like, I don't love. Mm -hmm the term ex-evangelical like i'm no longer an evangelical Mm, but i do not identify as an ex-evangelical because that that i feel ties me to a popular movement that is full of a lot of ire and like bitterness still like they're holding Mm. on they get pleasure from being angry at evangelicals that raise them like Mm. i'm not an ex-evangelical but i am no longer an evangelical and like I would mm. rather do the work to figure out what my identity is in a positive sense than only mm. define it by what I'm not.
2: Oh, I like that.
3: that's my that's my main problem with the movement in general. It's We're doing a lot of work to think about what is behind us, but we're not looking forward with a new kind of hope as we mm. leave behind the the uglies.
2: Josh, you were talking about um how people who are typically in a faith crises use the word deconstruction and it brought mm-hmm. me back to someone had said yeah i'm in a spiritual emergency and i oh
1: whoa i like that i was
2: just like i never thought of that before and i was like i particularly like that term better than deconstruction there's just something that's urgent behind that word but it's not in the sense of breaking your leg or something like that where you're rushed to the hospital there's something mm. urgent and kind of nip, like nipping at you in a sense of in the spiritual mm. world. And I think spiritual emergency is a great term to use. So maybe our task wow. is to create new words for these elements that we're talking about.
1: Oh, totally. I actually, oh, I really like that analogy because what you make me think of is like, it's crazy that ideas don't leave you alone.
2: Oh, right. Like, oh, wow.
1: Like that's wild to me. Like, wh- Like sometimes, like, you get an idea, whether it's, like, theology or, like, something creative or something else abstract, but, like, sometimes an idea comes to you and it will not leave you alone. Oh, yeah. And it does feel like this urgent sense of, like, I need to sort through this right now.
2: Yeah. Wow. I sense that.
3: Where do those ideas come from? I, told- I, I love this idea. I that don't they know. Don't- it's crazy. Isn't that weird, though? Isn't that weird, though? Like, I can definitely see... The warnings of my childhood when people would say, like, be careful what you watch, be careful what you listen to, because you might find yourself going down that path. Like, it's it's very true. I started listening to Bad Christian and it introduced me to mm. the deconstructionist <laughs> and the liturgists and all these different uh, deconstructionist types within the Christian faith. And the more I listen to it, the more I find myself identifying with what they're saying. Like, I can definitely see that warning back when I was younger, when people were like, be careful what you put in your head because it mm-hmm. might follow you. And even then they're recognizing that ideas, once they're given to you, once they're gifted to you, like they don't really go away. They don't leave you alone. That's so interesting.
2: It's, it's almost me. like a craving. Oh. Like once it's, th- this is pregnancy, Emily speaking, but like, <laughs> one, but like, no, really once it's there, you can't stop thinking about it huh. and it'll just kind of happen. And it's not to the point where, you know, I ha- poor Alex hasn't had to drive, you know, it two in the morning to go get me pickles or anything like that. But sometimes like (laughs) I will be sitting in my office and I'll just have this kind of little inkling of saying, hmm, I really want a piece of chocolate. Mm. And then I'll think about getting that piece of chocolate. And when I'm finally able to get said chocolate, then I feel better. But imagine what that process is like for people who can't be filled in that way, where Mm. that thought is just there and there and there. And it's constantly present and there's no way to curb that craving, essentially. Yeah. Could you imagine that?
3: Marketing gurus talk about opening sticky loops for people. Mm. Like when you're writing copy, you open loops that you will one at one point close. And typically the closing of the loop is pitching your product or your service as the solution to like the open loop that is mm-hmm. now plaguing you. hmm
0: Mm. Oh. Which,
3: to be honest, theology does a lot.
0: Yes, let's be
1: fair. That's true. Yes, it, does it does. a lot? Do
3: you think theology does that with nefarious purposes, or is that just the nature of the way our brains work with ideas?
1: I think it's the nature of the way that we work. Yeah, and I think that that is what Derrida was getting at with deconstruction—that like, no matter if you're like "quote unquote" tempted with the forbidden fruit of a different idea, like I kind of see what you're saying, Stephen. Yeah, but like, even if that doesn't happen, like Derrida would say that. Any idea or word that you're given will like inherently break down on mm-hmm. its own mm-hmm. and that you don't have to be given a different idea for the thing to break down itself. It's still going to do I
0: think do that it. the other thing. Wow. So he's just
3: calling out entropy in psychology. In the way language and yeah. ideas
2: work. Wow. Yeah. Because yeah. things evolve and so language has to evolve as well.
1: And I think that's the other thing that this is a personal pet peeve. I hope. No one takes this personally, but I think that the other thing that does annoy me about this conversation, not YouTube, but like this general like deconstruction conversation is like, I think it gets used in a, like as an identity marker. And I just get so irritated with labels and identity markers, period. Mm. And so then the fact that like this is happening in like a, in like a theological way, I get annoyed at, even though I, I can recognize that people are using it in a way to like make sense of their own spiritual emergency or their faith crisis or whatever and so i don't want to like blame people for trying to find a word that makes sense to them but i get particularly annoyed because i think that ideas and words and theology themselves deconstruct we don't get deconstruct
2: mm, i see what you're like, saying you know what i mean yeah. like i think
1: i feel like people sometimes use it as such like a personal verb like i am deconstructing right and it becomes this like personal definition i mean i think that that can be dangerous like regardless of Theology, like that, can be oh. dangerous as like a labeling thing for other things. It can but, be
2: toxic, yeah.
1: Yeah, I feel like people really latch onto that as like an identity sometimes, and I feel annoyed at that. And I, I don't know what to do with that personally, because like I'm never going to call anyone out personally for that. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not the person who like goes up to someone and finger points and says, "You're not deconstructing." <laughs> like I'm not going to do that. Wow. <laughs>
0: yeah. You
1: know, but I'm annoyed. <laughs> No, I would never do that. No, no, no. I don't want to see. That's the difficulty for me is like, I don't want to invalidate the obvious movement. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Well, yeah. Because then you're just like the word or the tone police. You're coming around like, actually, you're not doing that well. Like (laughs) turns into mansplaining pretty quickly, doesn't it?
2: Oops. Um, Exactly. (laughs) But you do bring up a good point. Like we are not the ones deconstructing. It's these ideas and thoughts and language. And yeah, the things around us are changing. And I think we, in a sense, are changing too, but we are not. I get what you're saying, Josh. I like that. I agree. Now I'm angry too.
3: (laughs) Now you're Don't be angry. No, okay. So to go
1: back to your point, Stephen, about Emily being a really good deconstructionist, I think that biblical interpretation is maybe one of the best examples of deconstruction ever. Oh, hands down. You know what I mean? Because you have to like, if you do a word study and you try to figure out what's actually being said hermeneutically, Mm. you have to like go back to the... The best translations, and then you have to go back to the original language, and then you talk about the original language in context, and then like at a certain point, it like breaks down, and you have to be like, well, I don't know. like It could be either one.
0: Yeah, mm.
2: and That's also y- where it can be powerful, but also dangerous when used for mm. your own personal gain. What do you mean? So like, it's one thing to say, here's this Bible passage. Oh, here's a word here. Well why, like the Psalms is a great example. When when Psalms uses f- to fear the Lord, people think it means to be afraid of the Lord. No, fear oh. fear is meaning reverence, wow. like to give reverence to God. Yeah. So it completely changes the whole meaning of that passage, right? Well, if someone mm. if someone is trying to have a personal agenda about them or to promote a stance on something, they can then find scripture that would use a word to fit their agenda. Do you get what I'm saying?
3: Yeah, I see what you're saying. We're back to proof texting.
2: Yes, it can be dangerous. We don't get to change the author's intent or the author's meaning. We don't have that power.
3: Or lift words out of their context as if they were just like mm-hmm. spoken into the ether with, without anything preceding or proceeding. Exactly. Those words being written or those words being spoken. Oh, that's good. Okay, now I'm thinking about this this idea that we are not the things being deconstructed. It Rather, it's right. ideologies or the theologies we hold, which, to be honest, sounds an awful lot like what I was warned about in my early life, in my early faith life, when mm. they would say, mm-hmm. don't make things other than Christ himself your identity. Like, don't build your identity on things that aren't just Christ himself, because if you start... It's I, th- I think we get really attracted to picking up labels so that we can just like signal to that camp. Like, yeah, I, I belong in-, in your tent circle or whatever. Like, so when I mm-hmm. say I'm an open theist, Christian universalist, like I'm signaling a lot of things <laughs> all at once. But, yeah. you know, give me two years and maybe <laughs> I'm deconstructing the concept of Christian universalism now. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. I feel like my identity is all wrapped into it because I've allowed it to, like, get in there you know sure so what does it mean now to you when you hear the term like make christ your identity cuz Josh did you hear that growing up was that a common was that a common thing in your church
1: no no i've never heard that like uh, not as like a popular phrase oh, i guess really? i mean it doesn't sound completely foreign i've probably heard sure. someone say it before but that wasn't like a trope through my childhood what
3: about you emily is that a new concept
2: no that no no. That's a new one for me.
3: Really?
1: But it makes sense, I guess. Like it sounds easy enough. Like it, I I feel I, like I can I see what's being meant. It does
3: sound very easy. I don't think it's as easy as the words betray, you know? Like, oh, just simply mm. make your identity this ineffable person that you will never meet this side of heaven or whatever. But yeah, so now now I'm just thinking about identity. And like if we make just the camp, the theological camps we belong to or just certain concepts our identity, then it, then it definitely does feel like we are the things deconstructing and not just the idea that's breaking down. Mm. Right. Like maybe at the heart of this is the, uh,
1: the paradox of having such a unique spiritual journey in each person, but also we are existing together as a common entity. Oh. And like, it kind of goes back to like the way that the individual fits within the group. Like, I think for some people, even if they identify with the word deconstruction for a time, that maybe what they're going through is a quote unquote normal spiritual journey that other people have walked before. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's going to be different, obviously. And we're all going to rethink different things at different times. But like, it's not like nobody's n- thought about those things before you did, you know? True. Yeah.
3: True. And that gives me a lot of comfort. Like I'm, I'm glad that I'm not mm. the first one to have these ideas. Cause then I would feel very much, isolated and alone
2: alone yeah Yeah.
3: exactly Mm -hmm. you know when i get to point out that christian universalism is not new like origin the church father was talking about (laughs) these things centuries ago that gives me a certain degree of comfort it's like okay so this isn't it's not like a brand new thing that we're just dreaming up in the 2020s just because we don't want to contend with the realities of hell and people going there you know like we've been us as a church we've been thinking about this for a while on that
1: note, actually, you reminded me of a couple of years ago. I think this was just about the time I was leaving my last church. I was listening to this one podcast and they were talking about the relationship between science and religion. And it was a really interesting conversation. Um, I might try and go back and find it, see if we can put a link in the notes because mm. it was a great one. I'm pretty sure it was by Homebrewed Christianity with Trip Fuller. The majority of this conversation was about like science and religion and like the way that the Bible in particular relates to it. And they weren't talking about like anything completely new that I hadn't heard before, but I like had this epiphany through it. So I I had like already been introduced to the the idea of if some things of the Bible are, they they might be like scientifically accurate, but like that's not the point. So like even if something is scientifically accurate, like it's not necessarily there to give us a scientific truth. It's there for like spiritual truth. Mm. And so in the interview, the Scientist dude like mentioned that again. And he was like, the Bible's primary objective is to give us spiritual truth. And anything else that's there is just like icing on the cake. Mm. Like even if it like happened historically or if it is scientifically accurate, like that's just a happenstance. It's not primarily motivated to do that. Its primary motivation is spiritual truth. Mm. So I'd like already thought about that in terms of Genesis. Like, oh, like what is Genesis trying to say spiritually? Is it trying to say like this and this and this and this? And then I was like, wait, what about what about the other books? Like what about Exodus. And I like, started thinking about Exodus and this is where I had it. I was like, wait, what if the book of Exodus, like if the book of Exodus is primarily motivated to give a spiritual truth and point us towards Christ in some way, then what is like the spiritual truth underpinning a story of a people going through an exodus out of slavery and wandering around through a wilderness, not knowing where to go. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, that's how I feel right now. Yeah. Holy crap.
3: Like, and
1: I just like had this moment of like, it's there in the Bible, like this entire time, like the Bible is talking about these unique spiritual journeys that we're going to go through as individuals and as people. And I think we just like forget about that. Mm. Like it's all in there, like whether it's the Israelites or whether it's Jesus in the wilderness or Jesus in the garden or Jonah, like we mentioned Jonah on a couple episodes ago, like it's, it's in there. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break to say a few thank yous, then we'll be back to our conversation. Thank you to our generous patrons for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Y'all are such a huge encouragement to us. If you'd like to support future episodes of Ravel, visit patreon.com ravelpod or by tapping the link in the show notes.
2: Thank you to everyone who is giving five-star ratings and thoughtful reviews on Apple Podcasts and to everyone who contributes to our weekly discussions at Ravel Pod on Instagram and Twitter.
3: And of course, much love to Louis Zong for the use of our theme music in full color.
2: And thank you to the Highline
1: Media Network for having us as one of their founding podcasts. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, No Normal People.
3: because there is that figurative side of it where you're right. People speak about the voice as self-expression, which we all have. You know, I think it's a very, very, very important part of human nature to be able to express ourselves in some way. And I think that's tied into the Imago Dei.
1: It's in there. Yeah. And the Bible doesn't necessarily like put language around it. And I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's a gift. I do So I had that thought and I'm like, I've had that mulling around in the back of my head yeah, for a
3: while. Yeah, well, unless the Bible didn't need to put language around it because that's the whole... You know, like, you hear about modern Jews partaking in Midrash as, like, mm. an ancient, ancient tradition amongst their group. Like, apparently a pretty common joke is wherever three Jews are gathered, there will be four opinions about the nature of God. Like, they're const- they're <laughs> constantly grappling with the text in a way, and that's just been their tradition all along. And... Josh, I think you're accurately highlighting that many stories of the Jewish history portray that in a dramatized form. And, you know, once you finally have that epiphany of Exodus representing like the metaphorical inward journey toward rediscovering what a covenant looks like with this people um, hundreds of years after being in slavery and under the boot of an empire, rediscovering their identity in the wilderness and rediscovering what it means to find flourishing under their God's covenant Mm. yeah Mm. like it definitely starts sounding like yeah that's something that Stephen Henning has been going through for the last few years or Josh Allen, you know Mm -hmm. but so maybe maybe the Hebrew Bible just didn't have to put language like deconstruction and raveling because like that is just how what they do like that's that's almost Mm. it's almost foundational to their tradition that the foundation is uh regularly inspected (laughs) For cracks and for sure. for faults, and then they do work on it again and again and again, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Yeah.
2: Well, and I like it because it it allows an openness for those who are reading, whereas if we were to have a particular label or identity given to the reader, it takes away their opportunity to explore spiritually. So I remember I had a classmate who had shared in seminary, you know, she closely identified With the story of Exodus because of her family's history with slavery, like as a Mm. as a young black girl and this idea of lamenting. And like, I can't read it in the same way as a white woman, Mm. but I can read it like how Stephen was saying in this spiritual Exodus of finding a way to God, of having this reconnection where I'm no longer under the foot of the world per se. I am now free to actually live in god's kingdom in a sense and i think if we try to have particular words or language around it we're taking away or hindering that opportunity for people to have that exploration found within the text and to find spiritual truth Mm. for themselves Mm. rather than giving spiritual truth and saying this is how it has to be well no it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way you know just like our individual faith journey is so unique, so can finding spiritual truth within the text.
3: Hmm. Now I'm thinking about how Jesus in his ministry gave us many, many things that we as a Western civilization built on Judeo-Christian values, like we, we still stand on to this day. Like if somebody asks what Jesus was about, you refer him to Matthew 5 through 7 and like the Sermon on the Mount is pretty much Jesus's greatest hits. Get into that. and you and you'll know what jesus was about but i think there's another like there's a meta truth that jesus was teaching throughout his ministry that when we get you have heard it said but now i say to you and i very Mm. i'm starting to wonder if if we get to enter that tradition as well and it the buck just didn't stop with jesus so like do we dare to be people in 2021 who can say you have heard it said by the Apostle Paul in this letter, such and such. But now I say to you, like, do we get to do that? I mean, that sounds really sacrilegious on, on face value because now we're getting to like elevate ourselves above scripture in a way. Mm-hmm. But I kind of wonder if Jesus was trying to teach us that we get to do that alongside him and along with him as we discover spiritual truth.
2: Well, if that's the case, then you should like Sermon on the Plain better than Sermon on the Mount.
3: Oh, this is in Luke, correct? Yeah. That sermon on the plane has been hard to read for me in the in the last couple of years, and to be honest, I I need to do more work with it because yes, we get the beatitudes, like blessed are the the nine in mm-hmm. Matthew, but then the sermon on the plane in Luke, where Jesus turns around and pronounces woes on other specific people, I'm like ah ah that, that, I don't know. It's it's hard to grapple with. I well- think.
2: I think you should like it, though, because, and I loved how my professor, like, explained this when, you know, rather than seeing Jesus, I mean, okay, let me, let me sort of, yes, Jesus is like the head honcho, we get that. That's not what this particular thing is going to be about. Jesus being amongst us giving this sermon rather than looking at the people below and saying all of this. We can see Jesus at eye level now talking not at us, but to us and talking with us about this. And I really loved how my professor explained that, um, how we are given this opportunity. We can choose to either be on a mount per se and looking down at people, or we can be at eye level and talking with and to people. And I think just talking about this idea of raveling or deconstructing or Whatever term we finally decide to use, I think it's a chance for us to be at eye level with each individual's experience rather than mm. placing your experience above everyone else's. Mm. So, like, yes, we're all, we're all deconstructing in some way. We all have or will or are right now going through a spiritual emergency. But rather than placing it above, we should be coming together together. And saying, hey, we are experiencing this. Yes, there are individual uniquenesses to what we are experiencing, but we can come at it together rather than distancing ourselves from the overall experience Mm. from other people.
3: Mm. So Jesus gets to say, you've heard it said, but I say to you with some level of authority given who we think he is. But now we get to say, we have heard it said, but now I wonder.
2: Is <laughs> yes. basic is basically the new way to
3: turn that around.
2: <laughs> yeah,
3: that's what I hear you describing. Like, if we're going to put it in words, I like I really like this spatial metaphor of the Sermon on the Plain being right. Like in in one way, the Sermon well, on the Mount wouldn't the Sermon on the Mount already had have been seen as
1: like a radical God with us kind of thing because it's a callback to like Mount Sinai and God speaking to Israel. Mm-hmm. Yes, and then Jesus speaking from the mountain to the people would still be seen as with the people, even though he's like higher by elevation or whatever. Right. That still would have been seen as pretty radical. Yeah. In the original writing. Thank right? you,
2: Dr. schreiner for your wonderful wisdom.
1: <laughs> what do you think is happening? What is why why is this happening now? For instance, Derrida's deconstruction concept could be applied to anything. It could be religion, it could be politics, it could be the criminal justice system. You could apply the concept of deconstruction to Any system. Why this? Why now? Are we like a part of something historic? Do you think? Like, is this going to be looked back upon as like the great deconstruction or the great raveling or whatever? Like, I don't Mm. know. Like, why do you think this is happening right now? Or do you feel like you have any sense of it in yourself? Like, I guess I've been wanting to ask both of you actually if there's been any time in your life where you felt the words deconstructing or deconstruction was really applicable to you or like you felt like you identified with it and if so what caused it for you like can you point to anything specific that made you feel that way
3: i i wonder if what we're experiencing is a i don't know maybe crisis of identity is the right way to phrase it but i'm stuck on this concept of identity now and like uh, us not being the things that are deconstructing rather the ideas we hold but if we get too intertwined with them you know, like if we get too mixed into it, then it feels that way. I um, never thought about that. Before. Sure. Holy crap. Almost like the wheat in the tears
0: mm-hmm.
3: parable, right? Where it's like, don't pull up the tears right now. The tares uh, are so ingrained into this field at yeah. this point. If you pull up the tares, the roots are also going to get twisted up with the wheat and you're going to kill good wheat in the process. So let it all grow together. Mm hmm. But so like this intertwining of the ideas, letting them sink down into identity levels within us. I wonder if this whole deconstruction movement and whether we whether it's spiritual, whether it's people leaving evangelicalism or leaving Catholicism or people kind of waking up to the way systems above the individuals that created those systems can perpetuate racism or sexism. Like we we often hear that the somebody doesn't have to identify as a racist to enter in the systemic stream of like perpetuating racism, even Mm -hmm, unconsciously, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think when, when people start saying like we gotta address the system and people start feeling defensive and we hear the phrase like, Well, I'm not a racist, I think it's because we're getting down to the the root level of where some ideologies have twisted themselves so up into identity. And this thought is being inspired by uh, my parasocial friend, Richard Rohr. I'm reading the divine dance. I told you guys I would have a <laughs> bingo, quote for it.
2: Put that on your bingo card. That's so funny.
3: <laughs> um, but he, he talks about how the identity of God being in the Trinity, this divine dance of three people in this ever loving and sharing flow, like one, a monotheistic God, a single God is a lonely God. And a dualistic God, a two head figure, creates some dualism where we get a lot of like yin yang and uh, like karmic ideas, right? But as soon as we have this third element, this Trinity idea, now we have like this self perpetuating and always energized and growing flow among the three. And our invitation is to join that flow. So Richard Rohr in the book is talking about how our identity should actually be in relationship and not just like, I I think it's, I think we're experiencing deconstruction in the West around a lot of different fronts because we insist on coming down to the lonely individual and defining identity at that level. Mm. Whereas Mm. I think what we're called into in the Christian tradition, the ancient Christian tradition in the Trinity is actually to allow your identity to be built on the relational Level And this, I think, is what my evangelical friends would call like building your relationship on Christ or building your identity upon Christ is that it's mm. based on the relationship between you and the God you serve, the God you follow, the God you worship, mm. and not just coming down to the lonely individual. You know, we're, we're invited into the stream.
1: I don't think I've ever made the connection to the fact that so many people raised Christian. Are given the idea that you are your beliefs. And maybe that is why oh. people are being so like identity forming around deconstruction or faith crises is because they were told you are your beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so it does feel like they themselves are falling apart. I've mm. never made that connection before.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: I'm like having an epiphany over here, Stephen.
3: <laughs> I love that feeling. I lo- like, I think this is what people try to get at when they talk about deconstruction is like when these epiphany moments come to us, it really feels like the clouds are parting and it's like, Oh my Mm. gosh, new spiritual truth is descending on me like a dove. Whoa. (laughs) Uh,
1: Oh, okay. Here's a question then. Why didn't the Israelites feel like that? Or at least as they're depicted in the Bible, why isn't there this tradition of Israel feeling like that when God speaks or when the prophets speak, why isn't there this like, identity crisis of like oh my gosh like everything we knew was false like holy crap
3: is that not why do we see that
1: i th- i think we do see it oh you do yeah, yeah
3: moses account encountering the burning bush his whole his whole identity was built around like he w- he was the one who killed the egyptian slaver because he was trying to defend his people but it wasn't the right time and now he's like wandering in the wilderness taking care of his father-in-law's flock encountering the burning bush like his whole thing is mm-hmm. like All his protests to God, as God invites him to lead his people out of Israel, all his protests are based on what his former identity is wrapped around. He's like, yo, I stutter. I don't talk good. So how could you possibly use me? And then and God concedes and he's like, fine, we'll use Aaron, your brother. But like, you still got to do this. But like all his protests are. Past identity versus new identity that God is trying to give to him.
2: I just really liked that version of what (laughs) that was great. (laughs) I don't talk good.
3: Yeah. I would also point to Josh, the fact that God renames characters in the old Testament every time they do have a major identity shift, like Abram pre covenant, Hmm. like pre God putting him to sleep and God uh, walking through the, the, the pieces of the animals is Abram, but henceforth he is known as Abraham. Or like it's only after Jacob wrestles with God yeah. and has his hmm. hip dislocated okay. he becomes Israel.
2: I would so like, also I, I
3: think it's there. I would also argue that's a good point.
2: With each prophet we do see this happening because if if one was enough, then the rest of it wouldn't matter. Hmm. But the fact mm. that okay. but the fact that we have new prophets that come and the fact that we have this it's almost like a merry-go-round. For a good majority of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament a little bit where Jesus is like, y'all, my dad has said this to you. Like, have you not heard the prophets before? How about you listen to me now? Because this is clearly not getting through your head. I think the entire Bible is that.
3: Well, so take that, Josh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. No, that's a fair point. I get. Yeah, that's yeah, that's good.
2: I think we're just continuing that endeavor. I do. I think I don't think this is new. I think it's just happening in a new way because of where we happen to be in time and place and space. But mm. the merry-go-round is still happening.
3: Yeah. Because the call of the prophets is always come back to a relationship with your God. So, yeah. like, we run into problems when we turn into, or when we turn to worldly solutions to what we feel like are problems. For instance, like, we have the ages of the judges, and we come to a point where Israel is looking around at all the other kingdoms around them, and they're like, Hey, everyone has a king and that seems to set them up pretty good. So we should get a king.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And God through Samuel <laughs> is saying, no, like that would mess you up so bad. Like we ne- you see how bad the, like civil wars turn out to be or you see how bad someone like Nebuchadnezzar could turn into if they're given if it's a soul figurehead at the top, like mm-hmm. this Leviathan character. Do you see how corrupting that is? And yet Israel wants to chase that down anyway. So they get Saul who turns out to be not a great king and David who's promised to be like the savior version of the same king. But I mean, he's very problematic and so is Solomon. Their national identity (laughs) tanks as soon as they turn to a, like a worldly solution that's based on like, let's put an individual figurehead at the top. I think America Mm. is also kind of experiencing that in our obsession with our king. I mean, president
2: whoever that turns
3: out to be every four years i think we're grappling with like america like we're it's easy for something like a monarchy to take over because like republicanism like small r republicanism is messy to keep things decentralized and keep things at locality and state level but the call of the prophets is always like no like leave the king behind you don't need it come back to relationship and it's the it's that relationship i was describing from richard Rohr's book like Entering the flow of relationship with God is what sees us go in a positive and flourishing direction versus wrapping your identity into something, whether it be bad beliefs or, you know, nationalism or anything like that, like wrapping yeah. it into something mm-hmm. else and tying your identity to something that's not divine in nature. I don't know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Those are good examples. I like those. Emily, I've done a lot of blabbing on this episode, and so is Stephen? So yeah. I am, <laughs> oops, re, sorry, Stephen. I would really like to hear from you Uh-oh. regarding what would you, as a pastor specifically, like this okay. is why I want your thoughts. Um, what would you say to someone, for person number one, what would you say to someone who is feeling like deconstruction language is making a lot of sense to them or they feel like they're going through a faith crisis or spiritual emergency? Like how do you approach them as a pastor? Uh, and I'm also curious about, Person number two, what would you say to someone who thinks that uh, like deconstruction is just like the road to hell and it's like the mm. worst thing ever? People shouldn't go through it. It's like not cool. Oof, how would you, uh, how would you as a pastor like begin to approach those people? Like either one of those because those are like really different sides of the spectrum, right? They are and I'm very sure that, different. Like that's a real possibility in a lot of churches, right?
2: Oh yeah. Well, so mm, okay. I'm kind of thinking on the fly, so if I have to kind of rebuttal myself, give me that space. Um, (laughs) That's what podcasting
3: is, Emily. welcome to the party.
2: (laughs) I would argue, personally, that person one and person two, while they are on the complete opposite ends of the spectrum, are going to have the same answer from me. Huh. And here's what I mean. First, I need to be mindful about how I approach those people. Only because... Some people have this, there's an image that they hold that as soon as a pastor maybe comes to them and says, Hey, I've, you know, been noticing this or I've heard such and such, you know, about you, just want to have a talk about it. Immediately people shut down and they feel Mm. like they can't approach a pastor because they're afraid they're gonna get sermonized too. And Mm. so I have to be mindful about time and place. Where is this person at? And are they in a place where they would feel open to coming to me? It's almost like this is kind of off topic, but it brings the same when someone dies, right? Mm. The family calls me to officiate the service, right? I don't call them and intrude on their space. They are going to seek the one that they want to help them, however Mm. that looks. So that goes for, I think for me personally, for any spiritual crisis or someone who feels that deconstruction is the road to hell. If they want to approach me and discuss it, then they will. Because if I start to intrude on their territory, they're not going to want to hear what I have to say Mm because I'm just going to be preaching at them rather than talking with them. And I think that, again, is that spatial thing. Because I have authority, I'm this pastor on the mount they're the congregation below, when I come down to their level and I'm bringing that authority with me, but I'm still approaching it as if I'm still at the mount, they're not going to want to hear me out. But if I bring this authority with Mm. me, but I approach them on the same level, then that completely changes the dynamic of how this interaction will go. I would say from there that we as pastors and whoever is a pastor is listening, you can disagree with me on this. And that is completely fine. In fact, I would encourage it because for this very point I'm about to say, that's how dialogue happens, <laughs> yeah. right? That's how conversation happens. And that's how we experience growth and understanding. And we can reestablish or reaffirm beliefs or we can leave some behind. And I think that's the beauty of what my job entails is, let's say I run into someone and they say, oh, this whole idea of deconstruction is the road to hell, I am more than open to say, let's talk about this. Like, this is something that sounds right up my alley. And they may be confused. They're going to say, well, aren't you a pastor? And don't you believe certain things? And I can say, I may believe certain things, but I'm just as human as you are. And I can also be persuaded in elements. Like, I can hear something from you that maybe I thought was life-giving in my own ways, but now I'm learning isn't and same for you we are always learning we are always seeing things around us and we are so quick to hold on to it that Mm. we think it becomes a part of us when it's Mm. not you know someone asked me the other day oh you know now now that you're going to become a mother and i said no i already am Mm. that part of my identity has been with me since i got pregnant and i like like steven you're a father that identity for you has not changed there's nothing that can take that away from you and so i think when we have this idea of things becoming a part of us at a certain point or a certain time or ideas shaping us in certain ways because other people say so well no that's not <laughs> that's not how it works our identity is always changing but it can never be unchanged and i think that's where the beauty of hmm. Theology unfolds and the gift of spiritual crisis in a really bizarre way is that is what can change, right? Hmm. That is what is open to growth and understanding. Like you will always have that as a part of you. Nothing will change that, but the thing itself that is affecting you will change. Hmm.
3: What you are highlighting too is that the fact that your motherhood began months ago, and like my fatherhood began in January of 2020, though I have no children in my house, like what you're, what you're successfully highlighting is what I was coming back to, which is that I, that identity that cannot be shaken is based on relationship
2: relationship to another. Absolutely.
3: Whereas, you know, a deconstructing idea, I suppose you could probably bring it back to like, it, it is rooted in your relationship to the bible but i don't think the bible is a person to have a relationship with i think the bible is only here to point us to the capital w word that we believe jesus christ is who is a person we can have a relationship with
2: right it's the avenue it's a tool but it's not the end of yeah
3: right so when we're deconstructing a theological idea that we pull from the bible that if we're taking our cues from jesus well enough we're not Allowing that theology to become so ingrained that it becomes a part of us or mm-hmm. so twisted in because that's, that's when deconstruction and unraveling gets extra painful is when yeah. you, you all, the, all of a sudden have to grapple with losing a label that used to get you like into a certain club. And now you're losing relationship with the people who also chose that label, right? Yeah. Like leaving a church, like that's a painful experience. Even oh, if gosh, you're able to yeah. say like, I think your theology is bad. And that's part of the the reason I'm leaving. It's still painful for you because you're leaving relationships behind. Mm -hmm. But the relationship began like being built upon the belief first and not the the person behind the belief. Wowzers.
1: Emily, what do you think of this take? I thought of this as you were talking. I'm ready. If someone is upset at someone's spiritual crisis, like whether or not they call it deconstruction, like if someone is upset about that happening, that in itself is a spiritual crisis. Like they are also getting emotional about someone questioning their beliefs, just as that person who's questioning their beliefs is probably also emotional about it. Yes. I feel like that's kind of interesting.
2: And I think it has something to do with being uncomfortable with the fact that maybe you, for a split second, identify yourself as that person and you don't want to. You don't want to be in crisis. Mm. We don't... We we as people, as social creatures, we don't want to be in crisis. We are meant to be in relationship. We are meant to have connections and we don't want to be in a place of despair or hindrance or loneliness. And when we see other people in that position and we see similarities within ourselves, we are uncomfortable with that and we don't want to be experiencing that. We want everything to be okay. And it's almost this idea of, you know, don't air your dirty laundry, you know, like, you yes. Other people have dirty laundry and so do you, but we can't let people know that. We have to be okay. We have to to show that we have our poop in a group and our ducks in a row and a smile on our face. Well, then you're causing more harm to yourself by denying this part of you that is experiencing a change. This part of your environment, your theology, whatever it is that is experiencing a spiritual emergency. And by not addressing it... Mm. You're doing more harm than good.
3: Does it ever worry you two that with now 30 episodes of Ravel behind us that we have <laughs> kicked off someone else's spiritual emergency and caused a lot of disorder within them just by, based on the conversations we've had? No. <laughs> okay.
1: I would argue that would have happened anyway. Like that's the, that's the whole idea of deconstruction is that thoughts and ideas and words and language themselves fall apart. Yeah. Mm. And in, it's my opinion that that is inevitable.
2: <laughs> I'm in the boat with you, Josh. Let's let's.
1: And say what you want about whether or not that conflicts with my ideas of predestination.
3: But.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think it's inevitable.
3: <laughs> so you think that like I shouldn't give myself an, so much credit <laughs> to kick off some no, else's no,
0: spiritual emergency. No, I don't think so
3: like don't. Kid,
1: Although Emily, don't kid I, yourself. the more I hear that phrase, the more I love spiritual emergency. Thank because you, because it also like has the word emergence in it. Like it emerged. Emergent, it's an emergent. Yeah. Like it reminds me of like it a, came
2: about.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: the concept that consciousness, like the mind and consciousness are separate, but consciousness seems to be an emergent property hmm. yes. of the mind. The other or thing. no, excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm mixing up words. I'm so sorry. Scratch that. No, you meant to the f- mind. Yeah. The, I meant the mind is an emergent property of the brain. That's yes, what I meant. There you that's go. what I meant to say. And so I like that it has this uh, connotation of like an emergent property. Like something can arise out of our spirituality unbeknownst to us.
2: Exactly. And mm-hmm. we didn't cause yeah. it,
1: we don't know what caused it, but it's there now. Sometimes right.
2: we can perpetuate it, but that it doesn't have to occur in that yeah. way.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Cause I'm thinking, my, my, when I first heard the phrase, Emily, I, I thought like in terms of the emergency room at a hospital. And, you know, someone who breaks their leg goes to the emergency room, but so does someone who's in labor. You know, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> mm. and maybe the emergency can be a very traumatic, like you're, you broke a leg and now you're sitting and waiting for it to be reset or, you know, the doctors are doing all their work. But also, an emergency could also result. In like a newborn baby leaving that hospital that previously yeah. was not Ooh. available, you know?
2: Well, an emergency. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Emergencies can take any form and very rarely. I mean, I worked in an emergency room as a chaplain, but very rarely are you ever alone in the emergency room.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah, you totally. Oh, that's someone, a good
2: word right there. You have someone with Preach you. Preach it, Pastor. <laughs> so
1: there you go. Absolutely. I feel like we should end on this high note. I like where we ended up on this. Yeah. So not to keep deconstructing deconstruction, Emily, <laughs> will you leave us with a word out of here?
2: <laughs> I see what <laughs> you did there. Wow. hey However you identify this identity, struggle, mess, journey that you are embarking on, just know that relationships can help along the way. We are meant to change and to grow and to adapt, and raveling is just another beautiful piece of this puzzle we call life.
3: and welcome to no normal people i'm steven
2: and i'm dixie lee The internet didn't need another podcast interviewing the same famous authors, artists, and thought leaders.
3: Dixie, my friend Bailey educated me about a word called Sonder. And this is the realization that any stranger or passerby you see has a life equally complex, deep, and vibrant as your own. So join us every Tuesday as we talk to the normal people in our lives and hopefully inspire Sonder in yours.
2: No normal people. It's like Humans of New York, but a podcast and in Montana. Highline Media Network, normal people in normal places.